Hello, thank you for joining me for the first episode of Clear Skies. I'm your host, Chloe, and I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am to be putting this out into the world. I hope you are anywhere near as excited as I am to be here, or at least are feeling open-minded. In our first episode, we'll be discussing two constellations that are for many the first ones they know. These constellations are Ursa Major, which includes the Big Dipper, and Ursa Minor, or the Little Dipper. We'll discuss the general idea of these constellations, the specific stars and nebulas that compose them, and then we'll go through the mythology and history surrounding these stars in various cultures. Again, thank you so much for joining me, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. So let's dive in. Ursa Major, or the Great Bear, and Ursa Minor, or the Lesser Bear, are visible year-round in much of the world. These constellations are two of a few which are referred to as circumpolar, meaning that they appear to rotate around the celestial north pole. In the extreme north, these celestial bears circle directly overhead year-round. The term for bear in Greek is arctos, and this is where the term arctic or bearish comes from. Ursa Major is visible from positive 90 to negative 30 degrees, though in the south, some parts will dip below the horizon, and Ursa Minor is visible down to negative 10 degrees. Ursa Major is the largest constellation in the northern hemisphere and the third largest overall. It's composed of 22 stars and 13 celestial objects. Ursa Minor, however, is much smaller. It's the 56th constellation in size, with only 8 stars total and one deep sky object. Now the largest one, Ursa Major, actually takes up over 3% of the entire sky. Ursa Major is well known and easily found due to a large asterism known as the Big Dipper. An asterism is simply a pattern of stars which our brains create. It's like an unofficial constellation. They can prove super useful, and in fact the Big and Little Dippers can help you find your way in the dark. We'll get further into that later in this episode. Now, I'm going to go ahead and describe the general shape and design of these constellations, but star maps, photographs of the celestial objects, and a list of all of my sources will be available on the website at clearskieswithchloe.com, and it's also linked in the show notes below. So, there are two ways to look at Ursa Major and see a bear shape. I'll start with the more common one. You'll begin with the Big Dipper, which consists of seven stars, three in the handle, and four in the cup. Since dippers are not super common these days, it may be easier to think of it as a sauce pot. This asterism appears to rotate throughout the year, changing position in the sky as it rotates by the end of the handle. Now to see the large bear, we'll begin with the handle stars creating the tail of the bear, and the cup stars forming the top of the hind leg and part of the body of the bear. Along the top line of the cup, there are fainter stars which create a neck and head, and there are lines of stars below the cup to create the front and back legs. In the less common version, which I personally think looks a lot better, the handle stars create the head and neck of the bear, with the cup stars forming the back and ribcage area. Stars continue from the top of the cup to form the rest of the back, and then there are again those small lines of stars to form the front and back legs. Now Ursa Minor is a much simpler constellation, and it also looks a lot less like a bear. Um, this constellation is also referred to as the Little Dipper, as it looks like a much smaller sauce pot, albeit with like a more curved handle. Now to see the little bear, it's a very similar process. 
Again, you can either see the handle stars as the tail with the cup constituting the bear's body, or the handle as the neck and head of the bear with the cup stars as its ribcage and back. Since these specific constellations can be hard to imagine, I highly recommend going to the website at clearskieswithchloe.com to look at the star maps outlining each of these shapes. I do have them showing both versions of each constellation. So now we'll talk about the specific stars and deep sky objects that make up each of these constellations. Ursa Major, as previously mentioned, consists of a plethora of stars and celestial objects. Out of the 22 stars, 13 of them have known exoplanets, so there's a lot going on in this part of the sky. However, the most useful and recognizable thing about Ursa Major is that asterism, the Big Dipper. Now, the three stars of the handle form a slight arch, and the four of the cup form a trapezoid. I mentioned before that this asterism could help you find your way in the dark, and to do this you need to use the cup stars. The two cup stars farthest from the handle, forming the outside edge of the pot, are at an angle to one another. These are referred to as pointer stars, as they point to an important landmark. If you draw an imaginary line between these two stars, from the bottom of the pot to the top, and then continue that line, you will soon find yourself at a dimmer but still easily visible star. This is the first star of Ursa Minor, and the end of its handle. It's also known as the North Star Polaris, and if you see it, you know you are facing north. As these stars are visible all year, this can be very valuable. It is said that in the 1800s, in the American Deep South, fleeing slaves would use this star to guide their way north as they made their escape. They mainly referred to this asterism as a drinking gourd, which was a familiar everyday object for them. In more recent history, this trick once helped me convince a very stubborn boyfriend that we were heading the wrong direction in the backwoods of East Texas. Now, you can also use the handle of the Big Dipper to find both Buotes and Virgo, but we will discuss that more in depth during the episodes covering those particular constellations. Before we begin discussing the specific stars in this constellation, I would like to mention an unusual feature of Ursa Major. As some of you may know, the brightest or most important stars within a constellation have Greek letter designations, typically based on brightness. The brightest star will be Alpha, the second Beta, etc. Ursa Major is unusual in that the stars were designated from west to east rather than by brightness. I haven't found any clear reasoning behind this. Maybe he just wasn't wanting to hurt their feelings, you know? They're all basically the same brightness, so... This is both somewhat interesting and can be confusing if you're looking at a star map that includes these designations. The brightest star in Ursa Major is Alioth, designated Epsilon Ursa Majoris. This star's name comes, as many of them do, from an Arabic phrase, this one meaning, quote, fat tail of a sheep, as it is the tail star closest to the bear's body. Otherwise, it is known as the first handle star of the Big Dipper. Some sources claim that this name is a mistake, and the original phrase actually referred to a, quote, black horse, but that's unclear. Most sources stand by the sheep translation. I have not been able to find any mythology that relates this asterism to a sheep or a horse, so I'm not really sure why it didn't mean fat tail of a bear, but I digress. Now, although this star is relatively close, at 81 light years away, it is the 31st brightest in the night sky. To put this in perspective, the average distance of the 300 brightest stars we can see is about 347 light years. It's still quite luminous though, putting out about 102 times more energy than our sun. This luminosity is mainly due to its temperature, 
Alioth is a white star, burning almost twice as hot as our sun. It is also about four times the diameter and three times the mass of our own sun. For its temperature class, it is quite large and quite luminous. Now this star belongs to a group of stars known as the Ursa Major Moving Group, which are moving at a common velocity through space and are believed to have a common origin. Five out of seven of the Big Dipper stars are part of this group, and it also includes stars in Auriga, Aquarius, Serpentis, Lepis, and Corona Borealis. The second brightest star in Ursa Major is Dube, also in the Big Dipper and designated Alpha Ursa Majoris. This star is the top corner of the outside edge of the cup, or one of the two pointer stars that leads to Polaris. This name again comes from Arabic, meaning bear, and coming from a longer name, which means the back of the greater bear. Dube is an orange giant, and therefore relatively cool. This star is quite a bit further away than Alioth at 123 light years. So in this case, we're seeing light from about 1898, yet it's almost just as bright. This is in part due to its large size. This star is four and a quarter times as massive as our sun and 30 times larger in radius. Dube is an aging giant, which is no longer fusing hydrogen. As it is aged, it has expanded and grown. In a future episode, we will discuss the life cycles of stars in depth and explore the relationship between temperature, color, and luminosity. Now, while this may look like a single star, it is actually a four-star system with a spectroscopic binary and two additional companion stars all locked into orbit with one another. The close binary star is a small white star which completes an orbit with Alioth every 44 and a half years. Alioth is one of the two Big Dipper stars that are not a part of the Ursa Major Moving Group, so over time this asterism and the greater constellation will change and disperse. Another star worth discussing in Ursa Major is Mizar, meaning girdle. This star is in the handle of the Dipper, second from the end, and it is also in a double star system. It has a visual companion, Alcor, and these two are often referred to in the hyphenated name Alcor Mizar. Alcor is from Arabic, meaning the proof, and was once used as an eye test. Since this second star is relatively small and dim, one must have pretty clear vision to see it. I definitely cannot see it without my glasses, and even with my glasses, I have to be in a pretty dark area with very little um, light pollution in order to see both stars. Now, this set of stars, Alcor and Mizar, was the first double star to ever be photographed. This star system is notable due to the fact that both Alcor and Mizar can be seen with the naked eye, and so they play into many of the myths that we will discuss later in this episode. Now, switching over to Ursa Minor, the brightest and most notable star, as you may have guessed, is Polaris. This star is designated as Alpha Ursa Minoris, and it has been the closest star to the North Pole since the High Middle Ages. This has influenced the naming of this star in various cultures, with Polaris coming from the Latin for, quote, polar star, and it has been known as the sea star, guiding star, the star that sits still, and other such variations. The Phoenicians used this star to navigate, and the ancient Greeks actually used to refer to this constellation as the Phoenician. In the distant past, different stars in this constellation were used to find north. From 1500 BC to 500 AD, the Beta and Gamma stars were referred to as, quote, the guardians of the pole, as they seemed to rotate about the North Celestial Pole. However, neither of these were as close to the pole as Polaris currently is. 
But as time passed, Polaris became closer to the North Pole, and it became used to indicate true north. This star is 434 light years from Earth, and is a good bit dimmer than the stars of the Big Dipper. This star is a giant variable star and has two stellar companions. Within Ursa Major, we have several notable celestial objects. One of the better known of these is the Pinwell Galaxy, Messier 101, which is a spiral galaxy similar to our own. A spiral galaxy has a distinct shape. It's a fairly flat disk with a bulge in the center and arms of higher density gas and dust spiraling out from that center. From Earth, we have a face-on view of this galaxy with its spiral arms in full view. This galaxy is about 21 million light years from Earth, and it's about 70% larger than our own galaxy, the Milky Way. In 2011, one of the stars inside of this galaxy went supernova, and we were actually able to observe it. Now, the Pinwheel Galaxy has several companion galaxies, the gravitational effects of which are thought to have helped create the shape of this galaxy. The brightest of these companions, and the closest to the Pinwheel, is NGC 5474. This is a peculiar dwarf galaxy, in which the disk and star formation are offset from the nucleus, leading to a bright bulge offset from the kinetic center of the galaxy. Again, this is thought to have occurred due to the gravitational effects of the companion galaxies. This galaxy is further away at 22 million light years, and although it is referred to a dwarf, it still has millions of stars. Now, another one in this area is Bode's galaxy, or Messier 81. This galaxy has much tighter spiral arms and a more condensed shape. By comparison, the Pinwheel galaxy is very open, again due in part to those companion galaxies. We do have another type of galaxy in this area, which is actually rather well known. This is the Cigar galaxy, and it is a starburst type. Starburst galaxies come in many shapes, but are characterized by their exceptionally high rate of star formation. This galaxy is about 12 million light years away, so a good bit closer than the others, and it is five times more luminous than our galaxy overall. However, the center of this galaxy, where most of the star formation takes place, is a hundred times more luminous than ours, due to all of the hot, young stars. The Cigar galaxy has a bright blue disk, which due to the angle we view it at, appears to be shaped like an elongated ellipse, or a cigar. There are areas of shredded clouds, and it has two plumes of hydrogen exuding from the center of the cigar, perpendicular to the disk. Another notable object in this section of sky is the Owl Nebula. Now this is a planetary nebula, which has nothing to do with planets at all. It's actually a shell of gas and dust, which has been ejected from a star in the late stages of its life. This is ejected as a star goes from burning hydrogen and begins turning into a red dwarf star. Although these are not actually similar to a regular nebula, when viewed through early telescopes they were similar in appearance. Planetary nebulas have a compact, round shape and tend to be fairly uniform, unlike the patchy appearance of a typical nebula. The Owl Nebula is about 26 light years away, so relatively close, but it's quite dim. 
It does have three bright stars, um, two of which are positioned so that when viewed through a telescope, they appear as a set of eyes. This nebula was thought to have formed relatively recently, only about 8,000 years ago. Now, if you are familiar with the Hubble Deep Field images, they were taken in a small part of the Ursa Major constellation. The Hubble Deep Field covers about 1 24 millionth of the entire sky, so an incredibly small section, and it is assembled from 342 separate images. This field is so small that only a few of the stars from our own galaxy are in it, and almost all of the 3,000 objects captured are galaxies. These images captured some of the youngest and most distant galaxies known. Three years after the original images were taken, a similar set was done in the southern hemisphere, known as Hubble Deep Field South, and they showed a similar landscape. This strengthened the idea that the universe is uniform over large distances and that we inhabit a typical region of the universe. It also gave us some incredibly beautiful images to look at and to inspire us as we think of all those other galaxies with all of those other suns and exoplanets and all the possibility. Now, going to Ursa Minor, Ursa Minor only has one deep sky object, which is a dwarf galaxy, aptly named the Ursa Minor Dwarf Galaxy. This galaxy was discovered by the Lowell Observatory in 1954, and it has little to no active star formation. It appears to have had about 2 billion years of star formation, which occurred approximately 11 billion years ago. As such, this is a fairly faint and difficult to see galaxy, which should be clear just by the fact that it wasn't even discovered until 1954. Now, it's also worth noting that there's a recently discovered meteor shower in this area, the Kappa Ursa Majorids, which peak between November 1st and November 10th, so you may want to mark your calendars. Now, as these constellations are some of the most recognizable and oldest known in the world, there's a wealth of myths and stories surrounding these stars. The first stories are thought to date back to the Ice Age, when people were able to cross the Bering Strait to North America. It's even thought that the constellation first got its name 50,000 years ago from a Paleolithic bear cult. In many myths, there's a kinship between bears and humans, often strengthened by the fact that bears can stand on their hind legs and gesture with their front paws. This connects bears to Ursa Major, as the constellation rotates in the sky, changing from a quadrupedal position to a bipedal one, seeming to run on all fours near the horizon and rise to its hind feet to begin ascending back into the sky. Now even though these myths and legends are based on these beautiful, sparkling constellations, they get really dark really fast, so buckle up because things are about to get a little bit weird. Now, the first story I'll share comes from the Mi'kmaq Indians of Nova Scotia and the Iroquois Indians along the St. Lawrence Seaway. In case you're like me and you aren't great at geography, Nova Scotia is in eastern Canada, right next to Maine, and the St. Lawrence Seaway begins in Toronto, Canada, wraps around Nova Scotia, and ends in Portland, Maine. So we're talking about the northeastern sections of the United States and Canada, right where the two meet. In this story, we have a bear and seven hunters. The bear is represented by the quadrangle of the cup of the Big Dipper, and the hunters are the three stars of the handle as well as four of the lower stars of the constellation. 
As autumn comes, the four lowest hunters dip below the horizon, leaving only the three in the Big Dipper. These three closest hunters, the stars of the handle, are each named after different birds. There's the robin, the chickadee, and the moose bird. So if I have any ornithologists listening and you know what a moose bird is, feel free to DM me because I have no idea. The chickadee is Mizar, and its visual binary Alcor represents a cooking pot carried by chickadee for after they catch the bear. In late autumn, as the bear begins to stand on two legs, the legend states that Robin wounds the bear with an arrow. This injury sprays blood on Robin, and thereafter, he is known as Robin Redbreast. He shakes himself off and colors the leaves of the forest red. Like I said, it gets a little dark. <laughs> now, it gets worse. The injured bear is eaten, and he travels through the winter as a skeleton on his back. In the spring, a new bear is born, he leaves the den, and the hunt recommences. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go over to Europe for a myth you're likely more familiar with, which is the Greek myth of Callisto. Now, Callisto was a huntress devoted to the goddess Artemis, and like all of the companions of Artemis, Callisto had taken a vow of chastity. However, one day Zeus happened to see her and he was totally smitten. After many attempts, he managed to seduce Callisto. Soon after, the girl realized she was pregnant, but she kept it a secret from Artemis due to that chastity vow. Now, as we all know, you can't keep a pregnancy secret forever. So one day, while preparing to bathe in the river, Artemis noticed that she was visibly pregnant. Artemis became so angry at the betrayal that she turned Callisto into a bear, cursing her to remain in the woods and one day be killed by hunters. Now, Callisto remained pregnant with a human child, and a few months later, she gave birth to a son. This son was named Arcus, meaning, quote, born by a bear. Zeus gave this baby to the goddess Maia to raise him, and eventually he grew to be king of his land, named Arcadia. Now, Arcus inherited his love of hunting, and when he was out one day, he met a bear. He was completely unaware that it was his own mother, Callisto. He was preparing to throw a javelin to kill this bear. But Zeus was just looking down at the humans from Mount Olympus, and he saw this tragedy coming. So before the javelin could hit its mark, he turned them both into constellations. So Callisto, of course, is Ursa Major, and Ursa Minor is her son Arcus. Though in a few versions, Arcus is represented by Buotes, the herdsman. Now, a hop and a skip away, the Romans had a similar but separate myth, which still involves Callisto and Arcus. Now, Callisto was very beautiful, and while she was hunting in the forest, she grew very tired and just, like, decided to lay down and take a nap. So, while she was napping, the god Jupiter noticed her beauty and was smitten. His wife, Juno, became extremely jealous. Later on, Juno discovered that Callisto had given birth to a child, and she determined that Jupiter must be the father. Juno decided to punish her by transforming her into a bear so that she would no longer be beautiful. It sounds like Juno has some self-esteem issues to work on. Now, after she was turned into a bear, her son, Arcus, was adopted, and eventually he grew up to be an avid hunter himself. One day, Callisto saw Arcus in the forest and was so overjoyed she ran up to him, momentarily forgetting that she was a bear. Arcus believed that he was being attacked and shot an arrow at Callisto. Jupiter, again, was just looking down at all the humans, 
and he stopped the arrow before it could pierce her. To save the family further damage from Juno, Jupiter transformed Arcus into a bear as well and threw them both into the heavens by their tails so that they could live peacefully. The strength of this throw elongated their tails, as you see in the night sky. Juno was furious about this, and she decided to further punish the pair. Again, she needs to go to therapy or something. So she decided to go to the god of the seas and make a demand. She stated that the two should be forever forbidden to wade in any water or streams, and so now they endlessly march around the pole star, never setting below the ocean. Now, the last version we're going to discuss today isn't so much a story, but just an air of myth, though many cultures held similar views of this constellation. Now, I told you that all of the ones we discussed were dark, and this one is no exception. In this version, the Big Dipper asterism is not seen as a bear, but as representative of a funeral. These stars were referred to as the Great Daughters of the Coffin. The quadrangle forms a coffin and the handle stars mourners. In this particular culture, the middle handle stars, the Alcormizar double, represent the son and daughter of the man in the coffin, and the pole star is his murderer. They do say that murderers often go to their victims' funerals. So, Now, in this myth, the little dipper is the little daughters of the coffin, where the rectangle is the coffin and the three tail stars are the daughters of the deceased. While the relations and specificity of the mourners vary, several cultures relate this asterism to a funeral. Other views of this asterism are a plow, a wagon, a skunk, a camel, a canoe, and a hog's jaw. Now, regardless of what they represent, they have proven to be not only beautiful, but very useful to many civilizations for thousands of years. I hope you've learned something new today and might look at these constellations a little bit differently now. Please join me next week for another constellation and subscribe so that all episodes are automatically put into your feed. If you like what you hear, please share this podcast with everyone that you know. All of our resources, photographs, and maps are located on our blog at clearskieswithchloe.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Please reach out to me on Instagram at clearskieswithchloe. That is Chloe with a C because I am not a Kardashian. So that is Clear Skies with C-H-L-O-E. I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, corrections, suggestions, anecdotes, criticism, anything and everything you would like to share with me. Again, thank you so, so much for joining me, and I am wishing you clear skies ahead.